Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algaman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined once again by Kasu Sista, a data management thought leader and mentor of mine for many years. He's been on the show before. Uh, he has a background in management consulting, startups, has built data systems and governance in organizations of all kinds. Kasu, Kasu welcome back to the program. It's great to have you again. And um, we've got some interesting stuff to talk about today. I think we're, uh, we were just talking pre-show about, you know, what, what areas do we want to cover in particular today? And, and the reason we wanted to do a recording was around this notion of, of data quality. And we've got some ideas on things we're going to talk about with data quality. We're going to talk a little bit about consulting. We're going to talk a little bit about data DevOps today. So let's jump into it. Let's, you had a story for me on, uh, regarding data quality. So why don't you jump into it and we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. So the story is that I, I know I have done quite a few strategies, right? Data strategies, master data management strategies, governance strategies, IT strategies. So, um, and we always go in with a team, whether it's two people, five people, 10 people, mm -hmm. uh, depends on the size of the problem. And we're trying to solve things across the board for the enterprise. And every single instance of those where I went in to do strategy, the problem didn't arise at the enterprise level. The problem happens at some somewhere much much further below in the organization. Sure. And you know, you're nodding, so I, you know you're familiar with <laughs> what you're talking about. And yeah. so yeah, here we are, we go in and you know for six weeks for all these projects, we do the discovery, we do you know, current state, future state, gap analysis and the roadmap. Mm -hmm. And we did that at a client. And when we went in, we actually found out the problem was the packages were going to the wrong place. So that's where it started. Yeah. They were shipping product and they were going to the wrong place. So it perked up to, you know, a couple of levels and somebody, one of the leaders said, Hey, this is a problem we have to solve. It's much bigger than the package being shipped. Right. So they, they got the budget and they hired a as consultants, we came in and we did a strategy, which was our job. We had to do that. It was a fairly comprehensive strategy, which included a uh, data quality program, a data governance program, and uh, master data management program. Right? So as part of the interviewing, I was uh, I was interviewing you know, some of the programmers, and it turns out the problem was could have been fixed in a couple of days mm. with the programming change. Of the packages being shipped to the wrong place. So 12 weeks later, they still had that problem, right? But they had a roadmap that cost, I don't know, several million dollars over three years. And we left, I mean, uh, our job was done. Mm -hmm. And essentially nothing happened. Okay. So I saw this over and over again. And so my thoughts are, how do we actually make these programs work? Mm -hmm. right? Because we're trying to put something that is a large effort. And most of the time, the resources are not available to do the larger effort. So how do you leverage things that are already happening and give a few resources to fix the immediate problem and use that as a, a leverage 
to get to the larger, bigger programs to get implemented. Right. Well, I think this this hits at something that is is kind of true in any circumstance, and that is a strategy doesn't get solved for at the strategic level. It gets solved for at the detail level, like in actually implementing real change to real systems and processes. Data problems aren't just you can't solve it at the macro level. They they get solved at the data level at the time. You know, for us data people, the atomic level of data is where data actually starts to really matter because. It, it, yes, aggregations are important and, and applying them at any level of the organization is important, but you don't treat data symptoms at the aggregate level. You can't really under, unless there was a calculation error, which there probably wasn't if it's, you know, lasted any amount of time. It's probably data issues tend to happen at the lowest levels and then bubble up to bigger problems, certainly. So trying to treat it strategically and solve it strategically and, and be fully top down with this roadmap and here's all the ideas and apply it in all these ways, you end up never reaching the level of detail that you actually need to be actionable in, in making changes happen. And so to your point, you could have solved this problem that they spent millions of dollars on and months to try to figure out from very early on. And instead they kept marching down, you kept marching down a path where they couldn't even get to the problem. And, and that's, I think it's a great, actually, it's a great theme for what we've been talking about. Um, you know, before the show is, is to say, you know, thinking about the real challenge of managing data in organizations and, and building up capabilities and doing things like data DevOps. We've, we, um, you're going to talk about a little bit later in the show, but I think everything tracks back data quality actually tracks back to these individual aspects that in isolation aren't that hard to solve for. It's this mashing together of these problems that make it so difficult to take action because you can't solve them at that level. So of course it's difficult to take action there, right? And so I think it's a great point, but I want to, before we go into like the data DevOps piece of that, cause we'll talk about that in a little bit. I want to talk more about the consulting side of things and, and where is it that in your mind, cause you've just like me, we've both been on both sides of this thing where we've been consultants. We've been on industry side. We've been in startups. We've worked on software, like had a lot of different experiences. And how do you think that partnership between the, consumer the 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 buyer of consulting services and the consultant how does that look at its best what does that look like to you so you know i always said putting a team together is a puzzle and it's it's not um because you need people of different skill sets and different capabilities and different communication skills so it's, it's not well-rounded. You don't need 12 well-rounded people. Right, right. You really need what I call angular people. Right? Hmm. They, they need to be able to fit into the nooks and crannies gaps that you have in a team. And so consulting roles, I see two types of consulting roles. One is um, player coach staff augmentation kind of a thing where somebody sure. brings the skill that you don't have, but they have the communication skills and they have the wherewithal to fit into your team and be part of the team. So that's one type of whatever you call them. You want to call them contractors or consultants. I call them consultants because if yeah. they're bringing skills that I don't have, they're a consultant. 
if they are a pair of hands that I, you know, I'm just using to augment my team, yeah, then they're your contractor. That's kind of how it differentiates. Then the other side of consulting is really more advisory. And they're actually helping in management fill a skills gap because now all managers are, you know, you, I, you could be a CDO, CPO, CIO, but you know nothing about um, how to develop using Django Python framework. Right. right. And so you need somebody that has done that to, to allow you to be able to do that. So when I'm a, when I go in as a consultant, my point of view is that the people that work for the company that I'm working with, they already know what the issues are. Yeah. And more often than, than not, they have a solution. Okay? So it's really, but they don't, either some people are not listening to them because the problem has percolated up to a level where their voice is not heard. Mm-hmm. So you really are playing a carrier message from the team that exists to the management, or you're saying, okay, guys, you're doing this um, one way, doing it differently is going to be much easier for you, and your management will understand that better. Like you're playing your matchmaking. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it brings up like last week I was teaching a course or a couple of weeks ago, I was teaching a course for data diversity on, on starting a, a data governance program. And, and I said very similar things like, you know, your problems already, like no consultant's going to come in and tell you things you don't know about your own business, but the, the, the art of consulting and where consultants, I think, you know, can add a lot of value is in breaking down those challenges that, you know, cause, cause a lot of the folks in the organization, they may not have the reach to the highest levels to get the attention. Okay. I agree with that. They also oftentimes, while they may have line of sight to the, the details and the, and the technical problems, what they don't have is an ability to connect it all the way up and down that chain. And that is, it's the, the ability to structure an approach and break down these nebulous, complex challenges where you have a good understanding of, I think I can put the problem into words, maybe 80%, not 100% a lot of the time. Like you can't, you have trouble breaking down the specifics a lot of times, but you know there's a problem and you have like, this is definitely causing us measurable challenges in our business. But that's about where a lot of folks internally often stop. And you basically have a choice. Do you bring in an expert who's very well-versed in the structures and the problem solving approaches and, and, you know, these frameworks and all of these things that are, are different kinds of tools than what we may be able to work with day in and day out on the industry side. Or do we say, you know what? I understand my problems better than any consultant I'm bringing in. Can I build up those skills well enough to solve this on my own and do so in a, in a pretty compelling operational uh, way. And, and there's some barriers to that, right? There's, there's some challenges, even if you could build the skills in actually getting it done, because we already know it may be difficult to get the attention of the people higher up in the organization already. Yeah. There's, there is truth to that whole, you know, laptop bag coming in on the airplane, well, not as much anymore coming in on the airplane, but the, um, you know, but that external person who's, who's some sort of expert, right? Some so-called expert coming in seems to carry more influence than the people that know the business so well anyway. And unless you can, you know, bring that credibility in house with you when you arrive, 
it's very difficult internally to get the same attention that a consultant with a big name, big four type of background may, may be able to bring in. Like, wh- how do you navigate that situation? Like, if, if our, our audience is made up of a lot of different kinds of people from a lot of different kinds of places, but if you're somebody on the industry side who says, I know what the problem is, but I don't, I just can't quite make it happen on my own, what's your advice to them? So it's really, so in my experience, that consultant is playing the role of a translator. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a role. It's not you're not necessarily solving a problem, but you're saying that hey, here's a here's a vocabulary issue. Mm-hmm. Not a um, not the fact that people don't know the concept. Right. For example, somebody you know I'm. Talking tech now and saying, okay, somebody is an AWS certified architect. And all of a sudden, somebody says, okay, now you try to do architecture in GCP. Right. It's same infrastructure. You have servers, you have network, you have storage, you have data, data. Sure. But the vocabulary is different. Right. So the way I see what happens is, the IT, the technology vocabulary is so different from the business vocabulary, the message gets lost. Yeah, yeah. And so what a consultant can do, a good consultant, can make that translation and say, explain to the business that what I mean by I need this thing to be secured and business owns it, what the hell does that mean? Right? All I'm looking for definitions of these data fields and how you're using it. So I'm not asking you to do anything technical, but just I need your definition of these terms and how you use it. Then I'll take care of actually how to secure that data, how to store that data, how do I uh, transmit that data, right? Right. And so that's where I think a consultant can be very helpful in translating that language. You know, I... I agree with that. And I, and I like that. I've often said, you know, when I'm coaching or coaching consultants or, or folks that are hiring consultants, you know, I don't need to translate. I don't need to get a business to change their language. Like as a consultant, I can adapt to that language. But to your point, it's about different areas of that same business talk in different languages, even internally. And so the consultant could be nimble. They could be the chameleon that adapts, but it's about getting those two areas of a business to talk to each other and to understand truly what the others need and to see how those individual pieces then align to the overall strategy and then the overall strategy being the business strategy and then how the data strategy interpretation of that business strategy can actually make things possible. And and that's where, you know, I've had a whole, I, I have a whole rant around data strategy not really existing because people think, oh, well, we decide what we're going to do with data. I'm like, no, we don't care. Like that, that's not an end to itself. Only as it supports a well-crafted business strategy, it could certainly, what what's possible with data should I think hopefully inform what your business strategy is, especially where it's relying on data to make it possible. Um, but a data strategy connotes in my mind the wrong thing. 
Data is more of a, a tactical execution plan. Yeah, you have to be strategic in how you build things, but let's be precise with the words we choose. A strategy is about a value proposition. A strategy is about how our business goes to market, to make money, or to do whatever our mission is. A data strategy is how do we help the business do that with data? And that, exactly. to me, is... You know, it, there's a strategic component I get, and that's why we call it data strategy, but it's really about saying, how can we create a plan that gets anchored into reality? Like you talked about Amazon Cloud and Google Cloud, and, and like these are things that we actually have to build to facilitate a bunch of work happening to then execute a strategy, like to execute on a strategy. And and that's where like consultants, if you point them in the right direction and you say, do this, this, and this. And even vaguely say, do this, this, and this, that can be a good relationship. And I often say, like, you know what? I want to be able to drive a car. I don't have to know how to build the car to know how to drive the car. But it's probably important that I have some basic understanding of how things like wheels work or how engines work or how gasoline works or why I might need to get oil changes from time to time. I need to be involved in that process to drive the car, but I don't have to go manufacture the cylinders myself. You know, I really feel like there's a car analogy appropriate for pretty much any circumstance ever. Like that's, I, that's my default. I think clearly. (laughs) Yeah. In in my case, it's language, right? I'm always, so I'm, you know, pandemic, I'm trying to learn different things. And I, I started my career as a programmer, as we talked about Mm -hmm. last time I was on. And I'm trying to learn some new languages. Mm. So I find the barrier is not the language, because all languages pretty much do the same thing. The barrier is the mechanisms that I have in terms of IDE that yeah. I have to use to you know, use the language. And yeah. that is a vocabulary issue that's understanding what it is called in this particular context. And understanding all these utilities and things that I have, so I'd be able to put a solution to that. Right. And, and I, see, I see similar. So when we say I have I have planning, I have strategy, I have implementation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the management consultants stop at the strategy level. And then the implementation typically falls on a different consultant from shoulders or a different group in the same consultant team. Mm-hmm. And the strategy is not necessarily translated for the other group in a way that the whole solution gets, you know, taken care of. Right. Well, isn't the problem that we're thinking of strategy as a linear process? Like, let's come up with the strategy and then let's do all the work. And the people that are super important are the ones coming up with the strategy. And then we'll, we'll do the lower tier folks can do the implementation. Whereas I'm like, Hey, wait a second. I learn a lot through the process of building something. And if I'm listening and learning throughout, that could lead me in directions that are different than what the strategy originally said. And I firmly believe, and I'm curious what you think about this, but I firmly believe that if the strategy is resistant to change or if there's big friction in me making changes to our plan, I'm going to inevitably end up in a bad place. Like the the harder you make adjusting to new information, the worse off you are going to be. Because we could talk about waterfall and agile and DevOps and all of this other stuff. But to me, if we make reacting to new information harder than it needs to be, 
then we are going to end up in a bad place. What do you say to that? Absolutely. I mean, in the, in the words of General Patton, right, he basically said, no no battle plan ever, you know, ever uh, lasts beyond the first contact. Yeah, yeah. So the first time you meet the opposition soldiers, you better be flexible enough to redo your plan. You can go in with all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. but none of that is going to matter once you start fighting. Yeah, well, in the boxing equivalent of everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose, right? Like that's it. You have to. Yeah, the the situation, <laughs> you know, the situational awareness, though, becomes so important because you can think what you want to have happen all day long. But until you realize what's going on around you in reality, any plan is just fiction until it's rooted in, in reality, until an, an actual um you know, detail emerges that allows you to achieve those things. Strategy is is too often this academic, esoteric exercise that isn't rooted in what's possible or what's practical. It's just this wish list of, oh, we'd love our business to do all of these things without any real understanding of the capabilities of our business to achieve those. And that's what leads us to these, um, you know, these these planning sessions or these planning approaches that lead us to failure in the end because we never had a realistic shot at success. And I think that being able to ask hard questions, being able to encourage people to challenge the, um, you know, the ideas that are being brought forth, whether, you know, I think that can be done in a productive way. I just think that, you know, why not ask, you know, should we be doing something different on a regular basis? Plan that and, and encourage that. And recognize that no strategy, no plan up front is going to be perfect. It just, it's a necessary, I believe it's an incredibly important activity. I just think you've got to be, yes, really important activity. Let's throw it away immediately and come up with something better, you know, and and keep doing that. So that gets us into a, this whole notion of creating a, data DevOps capability because like, and and I've worked in a lot of smaller organizations. I've consulted a lot of larger organizations and, and I'm still trying to figure out the best model for a team of builders, data system builders, data architects, data engineers, business intelligence. We're we're going end to end on a data life cycle, right? How do you do that? And solve for what we were just talking about with this need to create a feedback loop that informs us of what we should be doing and helps us align to a broader strategy in the micro context. So what's your experience with data DevOps and what are your thoughts on is this a practical um, approach or is this something that in practice doesn't actually work as well as we'd hope? Well, it depends on the situation, right? So I know that's a very important factor, but I'll give you an example. Let's say you're receiving your data. So a lot depends on the, the product data production and the frequency of data that you are getting mm-hmm. on how you can do CD and CI. Right? Right. So you're only getting your data once a month. What does continuous development <laughs> mean to you? Uh, and so you have to you have to take into account the frequency of both data that you're getting and the mm-hmm. frequency of data you're distributing, whether it's different analytical purposes or visualizations, you know, all the different ways that people consumers are using the data. Right? Because if you're getting your data once a month, 
obviously you're not going to deal with quotes once a day. Right, right. It doesn't make sense. And so what does continuous development and integration mean? Are there patches? Are you doing patches once a week? Are you doing patches once a day? Mm -hmm. Because there's always going to be things that you have to do to make it easier for the consumer. But on the other hand, you have a real-time or near real-time And in data development, so once you have a pipeline set, once you have the pipeline designed, that is ingesting the data or acquiring the data, whatever terms you want to call it, your data is streaming in, let's say, near, near real-time or real-time. Mm -hmm. And then you're processing it and distributing it and you're monitoring in the process for data quality and collecting metadata, you know, making sure you have lineage and all that stuff. Right. Then you have what I would call continuous development integration. You can do that because the data coming in is uh, requires it. Mm -hmm. right? Or you could have a hybrid feed. You can have things coming in once a month and you have you know, this is what we had at uh, the previous company we were at. We had monthly feeds, we had daily feeds. Right. And uh, we didn't have, you know, real, really real-time feeds. And then we had, um, you know, not necessarily based on a frequency, you know, as-needed feeds. People would make changes and somebody would load something. Right. And so, so we had to take all of those into account. And in my experience, until you get that data cleaned and ready mm -hmm. for distribution, Agile part is really more of an exercise in implementing the methodology, but it's not really in the spirit of the methodology that works well. Mm -hmm. Once you have the data cleaned and you know stored in a place like a the warehouse, a data market, wherever you want to call it. From there, you, the Agile works really well because now you're actually interacting with the user. So what is, what's the lesson that I'm talking about? If the consumer is not involved in the production of the data, or the whatever it is that reports, whatever, then Agile doesn't work really well. Mm -hmm. So and, you know, one of the fundamental principles of Agile is to continuous interaction with the user. Yeah. Is what makes agile. Yeah, so and that's that, not always practical. I mean, you, it's just it, it's it, it's such an important piece of agile working, and is so often not the case, even in quote unquote agile projects. Um, that you know, that's the the structure of the project management methodology tends to get in the way of you actually being nimble, which is ironic because Agile's whole whole point is to be nimble and to be responsive of these things that we're talking about with new information and learning and, you know, uh, failing fast and all that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's there's some interesting things there. And, and I think, you know, conceptually, and this, this may go off the deep end, so we'll see, but the... I'm, I've become a big fan of the notion of APIs and black box interactions among everything, whether we're talking applications as the historical context would be, or data systems, data access through an API, API like layer, and even person to person communications, I think work, and interdepartmental com communications could actually work really well that way too. If you have, and the whole point for anybody out there who's not familiar with this API term, 
it means application programming interfaces, which also probably doesn't mean anything to you. What, what the point is, is it provides a very clear mechanism for communicating information and just as importantly, provides no visibility into how the other side is actually doing what they're doing. So you have to have a certain amount of trust in that they're doing what they say they're doing, but it allows you to obfuscate some complexity and just focus on what you really care about. So if I care about getting information out of a system, what do I care about? I care about getting to the information and I care about understanding whether or not that information is something I can trust. And if it's of a sufficient quality to do what I want to do with it, and I can understand, you know, some of the, the metadata and contextual information about it, fine. I don't really care what database serves it up. I just care. Did it get to me quickly? Did it like there's certain things I do care about and there's certain things I don't. But the data management folks that are managing the database, they can put it on whatever technology they want to, as long as our interface to that is clear to both sides. And that, I think, is a, is a great way of helping us really in a in a true, you know, structure and, um, you know, systems perspective break down these complexities into more manageable pieces. And if we can take and put a manageable piece in the hands of a manageable team that wants to be full on agile, have at it, guys, do whatever you like. If you yeah. want to change, you know, be you know, very thought like and each one can be different. We don't need to coordinate that just to coordinate that and just to have some consistency that exists across our whole organization because it feels comfortable for us. What we want is something that's actually able to adjust to new information and can be self-selecting to some extent. And, and you know, I think there's benefits. And see, this is – so if, if that all – if you were nodding your head and, and agree, I think, though, this, this loops us back to another conversation I really like to think about and have, and that is around – this notion of that coordination or enterprise architecture in a different world, yeah. because enterprise architecture, I think you'll agree with me, has become less and less a popular term and, and less and less relevant in some capacities because of this dynamic of having yeah. these different nodes and connections and, and APIs and, and defined interfaces between different actors. But if you think about it from an organizational perspective, there's a limit to where that's a good idea. Because if you say, all right, well, we have all these different groups doing all these different things and they're all connected and that's fine. But if they really could be using the same kinds of technology that would help all of these boxes be relatively successful, it would solve other considerations like the human capital question of, well, what if we need to create a new team and we need skills that know the business? Well, if we have all chosen different technologies in our little boxes, the ability to take resources and put them somewhere else in the organization gets limited in ways that it doesn't necessarily need to be. So you see these, there's like system level optimizations that still need to play nicely with the individual nodes. And I think balancing that is really, in a lot of cases, I think that comes back to data architecture now. I think data architects have taken on more of that role. And I talk about this, I have a new course, um, with Dataversity's training center on data architecture. And one of the topics is how data architecture relates to this enterprise architecture um, concept. We're kind of just shooting from the hip here, just talking um, stream of consciousness. But in the class, we get a lot more structured in how we're approaching this. But I think there's really something to be said for this. Enterprise architecture has become less relevant over time because of a lot of this change and, and, and nimbleness in our individual teams. Whereas data architecture has become bigger 
in its purview because somebody needs to you know have some thought about the system level considerations of what we're building at scale and like it or not things like data warehouses and data lakes and a lot of the data systems that we're creating in organizations still have a tremendous amount of scale and that's why the data architects are now getting involved in setting standards that apply throughout the entire organization so what are your thoughts on this i know i was kind of on my own rant there for a minute yeah, so you know it's interesting because I was um, you know I was sitting through some training on GCP Google um, mm. you know, platform, and that's the first time I've heard API used everywhere. Oh yeah. So apparently, so the cloud architectures have really solidified some of these vocabularies for us. And it still goes back to what I was talking about before. Yeah. Like how do you think about this? Now, back in the eighties, I you know. I was designing what we call loosely coupled systems, mm-hmm. which essentially said, okay, you have modules and the modules have interfaces. Yeah. APIs. Same and thing. You don't have to know what the module did. And the same concept carried into object oriented design, which mm-hmm. is really saying, you know, I object it has certain amount of certain behavior that I can leverage by talking to it, you know, using these messages. So it's the same, same. It's the same stuff. This is the exact same thing with different labels, slightly different technologies, different scale. It's in the cloud now. Huh? But it's like, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, that's the answer, everybody. The answer is it's still the same stuff. It's always been like this. We just like to shift things around. But in the end, it's all the same thing that we've been doing just with different terminology and some slightly different attributes. But like, I, I completely agree. Like the loosely coupled architecture, that's exactly what I even taught. It's the same term, highly aligned, loosely coupled architectures is what we say with cloud architecture. And yes, APIs are everywhere because that's how they build their actual systems in the cloud. And so we tap into them. We have our command line interfaces. It's all the same stuff, folks. This is, it's, it's bigger and new. We like to think of it. It's all new. This is not all new. There's a lot of truth in this. Actually, apply to because we did not have a cloud in those days. We had servers sit under our desks, and we have big data centers. Yeah. So we use this terminology for software because software was the big deal. Right. Okay? And um, so, for example, I'll give you a very simple example of thinking in terms of APIs. Right. Let's say you have a cucumber and you want to slice it. Okay? So you need a slicer service. And you need an API, so you may have a Cuisinart, you may have a KitchenAid, you may have different types of services, but they all provide slicing service. Mm-hmm. So you really don't care what the appliance is. You want this cucumber to be sliced. <laughs> and that is the API. So if you think about it in simple terms, everything right. you do in life, it's the Problem, you're looking for a method that fits the problem, not a problem that fits the method. I think the mistake we make is we are going to be agile shop. Right? And that is really a wrong way to look at all these methodologies. You have to say, hey, I have a day, I, I need to acquire data, and I have no idea what the frequency is, I have no idea what the data quality is. There's no way I can do it in agile. I, it takes time. It may take nine months to land a, a single data source, okay, in my experience. Yeah. From an external data source. Anybody that says otherwise are fooling. <laughs> okay. So 
And so how do you do agile? And this is what I used to tell my, you know, my customers. <laughs> I can't do agile. Right? Mm-hmm. It takes as long as it takes because I have no control over how the data is being produced and given to me. Right. Right. Well, and I think, I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to say agile can't be done, but I do think that there's, there's certainly challenges with it that are conveniently overlooked too often when agile starts to enter the data and data management equation. So with that advice, closing thoughts, Kasu. It has to fit the problem. Yeah. The method has to fit the problem, not the other way around. Yeah. I think that's I think that's an awesome note to close on. I mean, it's it's we've talked a lot about like universal truths in organizations today much more so than I expected, but I th- hopefully um you, you folks listening or watching on YouTube um get something out of it because it this is you know, we've identified some patterns that you're going to see everywhere. Like this is not unique to Kasu and my experience. This is absolutely something that you're going to see in your own shop. Like whatever it is that your organization is doing with data and how you're structured, what we've talked about today is relevant, I think. So Kasu, thank you so much um, for being on. We'll have you on again soon. Every time we we talk, we end up with more stuff we want to talk about. So we're just in this never ending process, but we're going to do this a lot more. So Kasu, thank you so much for being on the show today. I think we covered a lot of really interesting topics and I think they're they're very relevant for the folks that are in any organization out there working with data. Well, thank you, Anthony, for having me again. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more topics to talk about on this. Oh yeah. Every time we talk, there's going to be more and more that we want to talk about. So this is, we're just going to keep doing this as much as we can. So thanks again. And thank you for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. Please remember to subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit algman.com to learn more about Algman data leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.